Luke 7, 1 through 10 is the passage that we'll be looking at this morning. We are moving away from the, the Sermon on the Plain that took up uh, the better part of chapter 6. And now we're, we're back in the action of Jesus' life and we come to this account of, of an event that happened back in the village of Capernaum with a Roman centurion. And we, God's word says to us, After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us this morning. Heather Pace is a pastor's wife in California, and here is her account in her own words of how she became a Christian. As a child, I loved the idea of following Jesus. As a teenager, I tried to tell people about Jesus. As a college student, I studied to become a missionary. As a private school teacher, I passionately taught the gospel. As a pastor's wife, I discipled women, and I worked really hard at being godly. All this time spent loving, trying, studying, teaching, discipling, and working, I wasn't a Christian. I thought I was saved, but I wasn't. The road to salvation began when my husband and I pursued a serious partnership with a missions agency. After the missionary orientation, we were tasked with several assignments before deciding on a specific mission field. The very first assignment drastically changed my life. Getting involved in the local church was our initial endeavor, so we set up a meeting with the pastor of our church. This meeting did not go as anticipated. Instead of high fives and hugs to commence our ministry partnership, I left in tears. The pastor simply asked me to explain the gospel. And while I knew the message well, my words portrayed otherwise. I felt like a failure. It was embarrassing, really embarrassing. But God used this catastrophe in communication to begin chipping away at my hard heart. I knew I should get over this humbling conversation, but I couldn't shake the feeling that something wasn't right. Communicating the gospel ceased being the issue. There was a a deeper insufficiency lurking in my soul. I realized that I feared death. Actually, I feared hell. And yet, when I was most honest with myself, I wasn't sure my sin deserved hell. 
But I kept my thoughts pretty quiet and I kept doing my Christian thing. These internal thoughts got much louder when my husband took a job in ministry. Now I was doing my Christian thing as the wife of a pastor. I looked very Christian on the outside, but under the spiritual busyness, I was questioning my salvation. Then one glorious spring evening, the missing puzzle piece fell into place. It was a good Friday service back in 2007 when I realized I was a sinner. I rendered lip service to the doctrine of sin for as long as I can remember, but on that evening, knowledge of humanity's sinfulness transformed into a personal and intimate brokenness over my sin. To be clear, I I felt bad about sin my whole life, seemingly more than most. But this childhood conviction stemmed from external influences, good biblical teaching, parents who taught me right and wrong, and even the Spirit who graciously convicts unsaved people. Still, I was never convicted to the core by the indwelling Spirit of God. But on Good Friday, I became fully aware that my disgusting sin made me an enemy of God. My sin earned me eternal separation from my Maker, and my sin nailed Jesus to the cross. When I started owning my guilt, the good news of Jesus Christ became far more than facts. After years of looking like a Christian, talking like a Christian, and doing ministry as a Christian, I finally saw my desperate need for a Savior, and only then did God save me. Presumption is a dangerous thing for the religious. Presuming you are a Christian, simply because you go to church and you are a relatively good person, etc., can be perilous for your souls. Jesus is sending us a clear message here in these verses and in the previous section about true and false faith. Go back up a paragraph to chapter 6, verse 46. Jesus says at the conclusion of this Sermon on the Plain, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Remember, Lord, Lord is a Hebrew way of expressing a term of endearment. It means you love the Lord. You, you, you are speaking to Him in a familiar way, as if you know Him. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you say that I'm your Lord and not do what I tell you? Matthew, in his gospel, records similar words of Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. R.C. Sproul said that was the scariest, that is the scariest passage in all of the Bible. To say, Lord, Lord, and to be involved in all these ministry experiences and yet have the Lord say, depart from me. I never knew you. Now Luke has shared this passage with us at the, the end of the Sermon on the Plain. Why do you say, Lord, Lord, and not do what I command? It's not a coincidence that he follows that paragraph with this account of the centurion who is commended by Jesus for his faith. 
Now, we as Protestants believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this centurion is a great example to us of unshakable, genuine faith. The kind of faith that says, Lord, Lord, and really means it. What can we learn from this centurion about faith in Jesus? There's probably not a more important question to ask about, of ourselves. And, and in, in asking that question about faith, we can avoid fooling ourselves, falling victim to being presumptuous about our Christianity. Now, the passage doesn't tell us what genuine faith is. Rather, it shows us what genuine faith is. And I want you to see that today. William Hendrickson, in his commentary on the passage, makes this astute observation. He writes, And does not great faith always include a changed attitude to Christ, others, and self? So let's dissect this account of the centurion's face using those three categories. How is the centurion's attitude towards Christ, himself, and others? First, what we find here as we look at the centurion is that true faith has an exalted view of Jesus. Now Jesus is back in Capernaum, which was located on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And it was the hometown of several of the disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, John. That's where Jesus encountered them on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and fishing. And he calls them to follow him. And I will make you fishers of men. And Capernaum was located on a main trade route that hugged the western shore of the lake before it turned north along the Jordan River. And in addition, it was a border town. When you went north of there, you were out of of that particular nation, you moved to a different place. So that's why there is a Roman garrison located in this little tiny town. The centurion was the man in charge of that garrison. Now he was basically the equivalent of an army captain or an air force captain. And in the centurion comes from the word century, so he would have typically been uh, in charge of about 100 men. Probably was a different number than that by this time, but... You get the picture. So he was the man in charge of this Roman garrison there. And he is an unlikely candidate to have such a great faith. First of all, he was a Gentile. He was probably a Roman. So he wasn't raised to be a God-fearing monotheist, as the Jews were. He was uh, someone who was working for the oppressing Roman government and, of course, the Jews in the area generally hated the Roman government and wanted to be out from control of the Roman government. So, as well, one would expect this Roman centurion to not be a favorable person, and he's a pagan polytheist. But here he is, breaking the stereotype, being commended for his great faith in Jesus. Now, the situation is that his servant, whom he cares about deeply is on his deathbed and suffering greatly. The centurion has heard about Jesus and he requests through his Jewish elder representatives that Jesus come heal the servant. Now, we could assume uh, that he has heard about Jesus' healing power 
and is just desperate to save this servant and only wants to use Jesus. But his words tell a different story. When Jesus approaches the house, we see the centurion's faith on display. When Jesus comes to him, when he's not far from the house, the centurion sends his friends out and says, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. First of all, he calls him Lord. Now, we shouldn't read too much into this. This is probably not a declaration of Jesus being Lord over his life, though I think that probably is the case. It's a, but it's a term uh, that's equivalent to sir. Uh, you see it throughout Scripture where people say Lord and they mean sir. They're, it's a term of respect. Now, here's a man who is used to being addressed as sir because he is a, basically a captain in the army. He is used to being addressed that way by his subordinates. But he addresses Jesus as the superior. He comes to him and he says, Sir or Lord. He shows that he views Jesus as his superior. He exalts Jesus over himself. Very uncharacteristic of a Roman officer, especially towards the Jewish people who live there. And Jesus would be a, 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 an impoverished Jewish man. Through this, he recognizes Jesus' power and authority. Say the word and let my servant be healed. See, he is inviting Jesus to take command of the situation, to be Lord over this situation. Say the word and let my servant be healed. And verse 8 is key. I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under, under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. See, the centurion knows that he has been granted authority by his superiors. He's been placed in this position of authority. And he is affirming in the words that he uses towards Jesus that Jesus has been granted authority as well. Jesus has authority. Of course, Jesus' power is from the Father. And Jesus affirms this in many places, especially in John's Gospel. For example, John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. See, the centurion recognizes Jesus' authority and places him up on that pedestal. And he recognizes Jesus' power that he can actually command from a distance and the, the sickness, this illness that his servant is experiencing will be gone, just like that. He, say, he sees that Jesus is in charge. He doesn't use Jesus, but he recognizes something about Jesus' character and he puts his faith in Jesus. A lot of people today use Jesus. They only want Jesus for what Jesus can give them, which really means you only want the things that you think Jesus will give you. Blessings. 
the blessings of maybe their material blessings you're searching for. Maybe it's a, a blessed life or maybe you're just looking for eternal life or maybe you're just trying to avoid hell. That's using Jesus instead of trusting Jesus. If you really think about what do you want from Jesus? Do you want the things that Jesus will give you? Or do you want Jesus? There's a difference there. Because a lot of people want the things that Jesus can give them, but they don't want Jesus. That's why Jesus says, Why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I want you, Lord, to do these things for me, but I don't want to do what you say. I don't want you to have lordship over my life. I want to be lord over you, so you will do what I want you to do. I want to call the shots in my life, and I want you to help me out doing that. That is not true faith. That's just using Jesus. Have you ever invited Jesus to take command of the situation? like this centurion did. Have you ever invited Jesus to take command of your life? To say to him, Lord, and really mean it, not, Lord, here's what I want you to do for me, but say, Lord, what would you have me do? I give my life to you, and I will listen to what you say. Well, the centurion is a, a great example of this because he recognizes Jesus' power and authority and he submits to that. And that's true faith. Now my second point works in conjunction with the first point. They go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. True faith not only exalts Jesus, but true faith has a humble view of self. Verse 3 tells us that he sent representatives to speak to Jesus. And when Jesus comes near his house, he sends out his friends to speak for him. And his words are telling there in verse 6, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. I do not presume to come to you. Now, this is in spite of what the Jewish elders said about him to Jesus. You back up a few verses to verse 4. When the elders, when they came to Jesus on behalf of the centurion, they said to him, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he is the one who built up for us a synagogue. This is a very strange centurion indeed. He's a friend to the Jews. He is obviously a wealthy man. He's, he's generous with his money, and he invests it in their synagogue. He's a fan of the, of the nation and very helpful and kind. He was obviously a relatively good man and far better than most Roman soldiers but he does not believe his own press clippings. He doesn't believe himself what other people are saying about him. He doesn't compare himself to others, but to Jesus. I am not worthy for you, Jesus, to come under my roof. So you cannot have an exalted view of Christ and yourself at the same time. You remember what Heather Pace wrote about herself 
I became fully aware that my disgusting sin made me an enemy of God. My sin, my sin earned me eternal separation from my Maker. And my sin nailed Jesus to the cross. When I started owning my guilt, the good news of Jesus Christ became far more than facts. I finally saw my desperate need for a Savior. And only then did God save me. You know, it's a great thing to grow up in church. It's a great thing to have parents who are Christians. It's great that you're in church now, and it's great that you're a good moral person. But have you ever recognized your desperate need for a Savior? Have you ever recognized your own sinfulness and that without a Savior you are lost forever? Have you ever owned that fact? True faith recognizes this. The Apostle Paul is a great example. He grew deeper and deeper in humility as he goes along in his life. He writes to the Corinthians in about A.D. 55. He says, I am the least of the apostles. It kind of sounds humble, doesn't it? But you know, there's only 12 or so apostles. So that's rare company. He's the least of them, but at least he's still one of the one of the exalted apostles. And then about five years later, he's writing to the Ephesians, Ephesians 3.8, and he says, I am the very least of all the saints. Now that's a little different than saying you're the least of the apostles. He's talking about all the true believers in the world who've ever lived, and I'm the least of them. And then a few years later, probably near the end of his life, he writes to Timothy, his protege, and he says, uh, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So he goes from being the least of the apostles to being the chief of sinners. Did Paul become a worse person in his life? No. I mean, he was an apostle to the end. But his view of himself, his own recognition of his sinfulness, brought him lower and lower. And more and more exalting of Christ, more and more dependent upon Christ in his life and, and of, the, of the great sacrifice that Christ made for sinners, he reveled in, not remained in his sins, but reveled in the fact that he was unworthy, but through God's grace, through Jesus Christ, freely giving himself, he was saved, and he reveled in that fact. His humility was not false. It was God-exalting and himself abasing, and it was reality. The centurion didn't believe his own press clippings. He knew that Jesus was exalted, and that caused him to humble himself. Now, just like point one and point two go together, you can't separate them. Points two and points three go together. True faith, thirdly, has a concerned view of others. True faith, secondly, has a humble view of self. Because you have an exalted view of the Savior, you have a humble view of yourself. And when that happens, the fruit of that is that you have a great concern for others. And that's what Jesus has been saying in his sermon, if you back up, obviously the centurion had a concern for others and a great concern for this servant. 
Now, servants were not treated well in Roman times. And, and you know, you might could have viewed them as, as a throwaway, a throwaway human being. But he loves his servant, has concern for his suffering servant. And so he seeks help on behalf of his servant. Now, back in verse 27, Jesus said, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. When you have a true faith in the exalted Savior and a humble view of yourself, you tend not to be prideful against other people. This is the good fruit of true faith, a genuine concern for the welfare of others. Even when your enemies attack you, you're concerned for them. You're praying for them. You're turning the other cheek. When someone is coming to take advantage of you, and you but you still are concerned for their welfare, and you give, and you lend, and you help. That's what Jesus is getting at there. And the question we need to ask ourselves, are we more likely to complain about others and how they treat us? Or when people are difficult in our lives, are we concerned about them? That's the fruit of true faith. A different view of people than we would naturally have. So true faith. Exalted view of Christ, a humble view of self, and a concerned view of others. Well, Jesus marvels at this type of faith. And I could only find two places where Jesus marvels. He marvels at this centurion's faith, but in Mark 6, he also marvels. When he's in his own hometown, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. That's the only other place where Jesus marvels. And it's not because of faith, it's because of the opposite, unbelief. And it's to the very people who knew him best. They took him for granted. They did not recognize his authority. They did not humble themselves in his presence, but they rendered judgment over him, and they rejected him. And Jesus marvels at their unbelief. Now I'm picking on those who grew up in church today. There's a saying, familiarity breeds contempt. And we can go along and sit in the pews and play the game of Christians like Heather Pace did all of her life without really asking ourselves the difficult questions. But is Jesus marveling at our faith or is he marveling at our unbelief? Do we bear the fruit that we see in the centurion's life? 
Now, I also have a word not only for people who grew up in church. If you didn't grow up in church, if you're new to church, just look at, let's think just quickly why Luke wrote this. Back in chapter 1, he's writing to Theophilus. He's writing to a Greek man or a Greek audience. Theophilus means friend of God. It could be an individual or it could be just speaking to people who are, who are friends of God, who are interested in Jesus. And he says that he was writing these things that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now, Luke's readers, this Greek audience, might have thought of themselves as outsiders. They're, they're not Jews, they're not Israelites. Can they be assured that Jesus will welcome them in? I think that's exactly what Luke's saying to them. If you have the kind of faith that this Roman, Gentile, centurion had that Jesus marveled at, then you too will be welcomed in. If you put your faith in the one who has all authority and power to give eternal life, you will certainly enjoy that. True, genuine, unshakable faith in Jesus will never be ignored. No matter where you came from, come to him. Listen to his words and put them into practice. He died on the cross for sinners such as all of, of us are. And if we come to him, trusting him fully and completely, taking the, our whole lives and putting it in his hands, he will not cast us aside. I want to encourage you with that today. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Just like Heather Pace, just like the Apostle Paul, just like countless others throughout history and even today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the assurance of your word, the clear guide that it is for us. And Lord, we pray that you would shift our perspective. Where we have grown cold, we pray that you would warm our hearts. Where we lack faith, Lord, we pray that you would grant us faith. Lord, we pray that everybody here today would experience true salvation and have a true assurance of salvation, not a presumption that leads them astray. Remove the blinders from our eyes, Lord. Help us to see clearly. And most of all, exalt Christ in our, in our mind's eye and in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.